Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right, well, Genesis 27, why don't we pray and then let's read the text together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for biscuits and for coffee, signs of your love and your goodness, your kindness toward us. We pray that you would bless our fellowship this morning, that you would bless our time together reflecting on, reading, and discussing your word. We pray that you would, through these means of grace, word and sacraments and prayer, that you would form us more and more into the image of Christ. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. All right. Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which he had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. 
He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? All right. No questions, I'm sure. Utterly, completely straightforward. What do you see? What questions do you have? I've got lots, but I want to hear yours first. One thing that we know, right, we know this if we stop and think about it, but it's worth saying out loud. 
especially as we read the patriarchs, is a lot of what we have in scripture, especially in Old Testament narrative, is descriptive, not prescriptive, which is just a way of catching with words that a lot of what we have is the narrator telling us what happened, not telling us what we should do. And that's important to remember. In order to discern from what we have what we should do, we need to know the law. We need to know the rest of scripture. We need to reflect on whole narratives and see the outcome of people's lives, right? If we, if we mix these categories, then we're left asking questions like, well, is it okay if I have more than one wife? I mean, Abraham did, right? Jacob will. Several others did. But if we're paying attention to the text as we read, one of the things we see is the destructive impact within the household of having rival wives and thus rival sets of half-siblings. So we, we come to Isaac and we think, well, Isaac only has one wife. So maybe that means Isaac is being presented to us as a model father. I don't know. After this chapter, what do you think of that? Right? Because both among the patriarchs who have more than one wife and those who have only one wife, we also see blatant favoritism among their children and the effects that that has. One thing you may have noticed in this chapter, despite everything Jacob does and how we would assess that in order to get this blessing from his father. And remember, this is at the instigation of his mother, which is a whole other layer to unpack. We don't realize until Esau comes and tries to get the blessing that Isaac has given everything to the one he thought was Esau. He never intended to reserve a blessing for Jacob. That's worth stopping and commenting on. Right? Imagine there are two sons and one is the mom's favorite and one is the dad's favorite. And so when the dad passes away, he writes the mom's favorite son completely out of the will. That's a similar situation. It's not completely analogous, but it's similar to what we have. Does the birthright play into this? Because didn't, with the birthright, didn't Jacob, wouldn't he have been responsible for the care of the family? So is it kind of a reverse, trying to reverse the birthright? Like if I give everything to Esau, maybe it'll restore... Or is he essentially making sure that Esau, who doesn't have responsibility for the family, can kind of walk away with everything and leave the family destitute? Does that enter into the picture at all? That's a really good question, right? Because typically the, the birthright was given, right, that double inheritance was given to the firstborn. So the firstborn would have the financial means to take care of the family, to take on the father's role. But that's a big question that we don't really get to follow out all the way to the end. Jacob getting the birthright from Esau, does that mean he gets the double inheritance without the responsibility? Or does he get both? 
Does he essentially take on both? So, don't know. Well, that doesn't get traced out for us. But that's, this could be Isaac's intention to kind of take care of Esau since the birthright is no longer his. Esau seems to think that his birthright was stolen from him rather than acknowledging that he traded it away at this point. Yes. This is why we have to pay attention to the narrator, right? What does the narrator say versus what the characters say? Because the narrator says in um, the last verse of chapter 25, reflecting on that whole interchange between Jacob and Esau, the last comment is, thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau has later, especially here, clearly decided to reinterpret what happened in a way that puts him in a better light. And it wasn't that he didn't treat his birthright seriously. It's that his birthright was stolen from him. But the narrator knows better, right? The narrator describes for us what happens, records what Esau said at the time, and gives us an assessment of that entire exchange. That's something always to pay attention to, right? When the narrator tells you what happened and then a character tells you what happened, watch for points of agreement, points of tension, and points of just blatant disagreement. So those are things that help us assess a character. It's always fascinating to me, these accounts in scripture and elsewhere, people say, well, I'm about to die. I better let the good times roll while I can. The occasions of, as I age, watching people die. So that was an interesting thing that he senses. And I get it that it's a totally different situation. I get that. But then uh, to send him out to for with this ceremony perhaps in mind, of course we don't know, of, anything other than what's in scripture, and then for him to go out, and then Rebecca concocted his strategy, and I'm, uh, they did all this uh, garment and smell and whatnot. I'm thinking, their voices had to have been different. I mean, and of course I realized too that maybe his hearing was not so well, but I just the, the descriptive components of this story are just fascinating. Well, Isaac comments as far as the, the difference in voices, right? That was in um, 22. Yeah, thank you. 22. The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So. Go back to chapter 25 where Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Does Isaac, does that not even matter in this instant to Isaac? Would that have mattered at all? It doesn't seem to play out like that. Yeah, well, that's, that's a big question, right? Uh, and what's, what's difficult for us to relate to, because we have two related ideas, but they're not the same. One is birthright, and one is blessing. And these are distinct. And we, I think we get birthright more easily. Because we've dealt with inheritance, with family members passing away, with dealing with their estate, 
And we, we usually go about that in a way that's very different. Um, but there's an analogy there. But the idea that the patriarch of a family can pronounce something with words that is effective in the lives of the people over which he pronounces it, that's, we don't have a category for that. We read about that, but that's not something that is part of our experience, most of us, I think. So these two things, they are related, but they are distinct. And so the birthright is already, it already belongs to Jacob because of these arrangements between Esau and Jacob and why the family decides to go along with it instead of saying, no, that's stupid. Give your brother some porridge, right? That's, this doesn't undo that. I don't know. But they go along with it. And so the birthright is already seen as belonging to Jacob. But his father is able to pronounce this blessing on, on whom he thinks is Esau. And in doing so, with all of the things he pronounces over Jacob, whom he thinks is Esau, right? His, his intention is laid bare when Esau actually comes. He's, he's left nothing for the other brother. So, Blessing a scriptural mandate or a traditional mandate? There's the rub, right? Because for us, we look at that and we're like, well, okay, if God says this, then I understand how that would be effective and how that would mean something. But if it's just Isaac saying that, well, then who cares? I mean, thanks, Dad. Right? But it's like, it's like a Hallmark card, a very kind, right? very well-intentioned, um, very eloquent Hallmark. But it's just a Hallmark card, right? It's not effective in the real world. But that's not how they understood these things. They understood the blessing of a father to be effective in the world, to actually produce blessing, which we don't have a category for. That's outside of our experience. Like we read about it and we're like, well, that's weird. So why is there only one blessing? Why can't there be two? Yes. Well, and that's, that's what's so interesting I think it's made clear as the narrative unfolds that Isaac intended to bless Esau with everything. Well, but that's, yeah. And that's the difference between the birthright and blessing because the birthright is absolutely, like that involves assets and inheritance and wealth and goods and livestock and all of that. Whereas the blessing is a pronouncement over his future. But, but it's made clear in the conversation between Esau and Isaac that Isaac understood himself to be giving, to be blessing Esau, whom he thought was Esau with everything and thus reserving nothing. For the other son. Because we read that and we're like, well, why couldn't, why couldn't he give two blessings? And if he had intended that from the beginning, right? May God bless you with these things instead of may you have all of these things and lord it over your brother while you're at it, right? He's gone about it in a way that has intentionally not left open the possibility for two blessings. I think the, the elephant in the room, what... 
I'm going to use the word bothers. Bothers is the wrong word, but I don't have a better word. But doesn't really, uh, there's an ethical question about God here that is underneath all of the, the stuff we're talking about. And it is that the sovereign hand of God is moving these things into play. And it's clear because I think it says, um, I forget exactly, I mean, Paul refers to it in Romans 9, where he says, Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated, right? So it's not just whether um, Rebecca and Isaac loved and hated. God also loved and hated in this situation as well. And I suspect that the sovereign hand of God is what was affecting and bringing all these things to be, which brings up all kinds of ethical questions that my friend that you and I have talked to. Yeah. Uh, I won't say it since we're being able to say, won't say his name, but um, which struggle with, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know how to reconcile that. That's a hard question even for me as a believing Christian. You know, that is a hard question to reconcile, just like election is a hard, like I love, I love election for what election is as a believer, right? And the fact that it's the sustaining power, it's the calling and sustaining power, when will is so futile and so fickle and can never carry you through the end, that's a great place to be. But for those that are not among the elect, right? That's still, it's the same ethical question, right? I think, um, almost, maybe not quite the same, but anyway, yeah. that would be my comment. So the Westminster Confession will, will tackle that head on and distinguish between primary and secondary causes so that God can ordain certain and specific ends and indeed all of the means along the way. And yet he is not the one doing the sinning, as it were, right? He's not pulling the string of you, the puppet, to ensure that you commit that sin at that moment on that day. And yet he has ordained those things. Uh, we've been watching that unfold over an extended period in First Samuel, in Bible study, right? Because we know Saul's end. And we know that the Lord has chosen David over Saul. And so in that sense, what happens to Saul has already been written before Saul ever does it. And yet along the way, we see Saul act as his own agent, making these choices, doing these things, being called to repentance and refusing to do so. Um, then those categories interfere with one another in terms of our understanding and how we like to see it neatly work out, right? Because we, we don't, we can't, it's difficult to wrestle with this idea of a, of a primary cause and a secondary cause, right? How can God ordain and know and ensure that something can happen? How can he declare the end from the beginning without doing it himself in such a way that he's the author of sin? And yet scripture presents us with both of these things. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And yet Esau despises his birthright. Esau marries the women of the land. Esau 
settles over against all of his brothers. Esau founds a kingdom up on top of the plateau on the far side of the Dead Sea that in generations to come will, will capture the people of Judah as they flee from the Babylonians and hand them over to the Babylonian army. So that what is now a, a, this spiteful wrestling between two brothers will become the subject of the book of Obadiah as it asks about God's justice. And is God going to execute vengeance on not just some nation who's done this to some other nation, but a brother who has done this to his sibling? So. Such a difficult distinction. I, you know, I have a really hard time getting my head wrapped around this distinction. Like, I cannot see this clearly. I've thought, for the, thought about this for years and years and years, probably since I was introduced to the concept of election, which as a good Baptist, having grown up, didn't believe in it until I read the Bible. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if you listen to folks like Piper, you know, he would say things like, um, God ordains what he wills, right? He create, He is the, the source of the feeling that makes you choose. So yes, there is this this idea that we have a will that we do choose that in the Bible speaks of these things, right? Whosoever wills, right? But that God is the source, that um, regeneration is a miracle. You are completely dead. Dead is Lazarus, and God says, come forth, and you really don't have a choice as to whether you're coming forth when God says live, right? And so it's, for those reasons, it's a really difficult distinction for me to, to get my brain wrapped around that I cannot separate them. Because even if you say, okay, yes, the person doesn't do the same, I can get there. But if God is creating the willing to do the sinning or to do the believing, or whatever comes before that, or whatever comes before that, whatever that first little spark is, if God is what created that spark, then no, he didn't pull the trigger, right? But he set a cascading set of events that could not be stopped, is the way I see that. And I just, I'm, I know my, my thinking is probably flawed. I just cannot get that distinction to flip. Maybe one day it'll, it'll flip. <laughs> but I just can't seem to reconcile it for some reason. I don't know why I believe everything you just said. I do. But I don't understand why it is, is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it comes back to we, we underestimate the effects of sin. And thus, we actually underestimate the extent of God's common grace. We have this category of total depravity. And we, we distinguish total depravity from absolute depravity, right? Total depravity doesn't mean that all of us outside of Christ are as bad as we could possibly be all the time. That would be absolute depravity. What total depravity asserts is that the fall affects every aspect of who we are as people. It affects our will. It affects our hearts. It affects our minds. It affects our bodies. It affects the creation around us so that there is no aspect of who we are that is not corrupted by sin. 
And if that's true, then that leads to the question, well, then why not absolute depravity? What's holding us back from that? And it's God's restraining grace. So, and if you put, if you bring that into the picture, then the question becomes not, why does God hate Esau before he did anything good or bad? But why did God love Jacob? Because he didn't owe it to him. It wasn't necessary. It was freedom on God's part. And then you can carry that forward across generations, right? Why does God love me? I sure didn't earn it. And yet he does. Right? And that is only an all of grace. So the question like that, that flips, you're still asking the same question, but from a different angle. And it's not, why did God cause that sin? But why did God restrain those sins? Why is he continuing to hold the world in his hands? Because he could just drop it like a hot potato and move on. Well, that's what makes it so. That's what makes salvation so sweet. I, I do agree with everything you just said. I mean, it's what makes salvation so sweet because I think effectively you're saying, well, everybody deserves what those who are not elect get. But there are times when God, through His grace, has said, well. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to apply restraint here and not give this person what they deserve. It's still the ethical question is still there, but it is easier to swallow that context if you think about it because it's like you know it, it's this is not a perfect example because God is um, omniscient, omnipotent, everything right. But it would be as if a father had to choose between the saving of two children that are both going to die in the riptide. And I can only save one of them. So which one of them? It's not that I love one less than I love the other, but in that moment I had to make a decision as to who I'm going to save, and the other one didn't get saved, right? I mean, it's not a perfect example because God doesn't have our limitations, but perhaps. Um, yeah, and a riptide is one thing, and those children taking up arms against their father is a bit different. And that's a, that's a bit closer to the picture we have, I think. I think the thing that sums this whole thing up is a comment here in my Bible that says, though Isaac knew that God had elected Jacob, he still intended to give everything to Esau. Because in 25, 23, when Rebecca went and talked about, you know, the struggle she was having, it says that um, God said that one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So it was from the beginning of what God's plan was. And Rebecca knew that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure Isaac heard that too. And he does. He seems to be fighting against that, seeking to make it not so. Which is interesting because Isaac was the younger son. It's interesting to find this particular story from the other ones that we've had as God isn't really mentioned having anything to, usually he is mentioned in some form or fashion in the story, and he's not mentioned at all in this as far as, and then we were talking about it, kind of talking around it about 
his plan and everything. But like in 25, he comes to Rebecca, and you know we see that throughout Genesis where he's coming to them and telling them what's going to happen. And it's not here. It's all the the characters mm-hmm. are doing this without God being mentioned. That's a, a really important observation. And it, it reminds me of Genesis 12. Like the first half of Genesis 12, Abraham, Abram at that time, gets these tremendous promises from the Lord about how he will go with him, that he will give him this land into which he's going, that he will bless those who bless him and those who dishonor him, he will curse. And then there's a famine. And what does he do? Without, evidently, without any kind of prayer, without any sort of recourse to the Lord, anything like that, he schemes entirely within the means at his disposal to try and avoid the famine and provide for his household, which the Lord works through as a means, but the Lord doesn't come up, right? And we see that later at multiple points in Abraham's life as he struggles with not having a child, right? He comes up with these ways to try and help God's promises happen. And for Isaac here, it seems to be that he's fighting against God's promises, whereas Rebecca is trying to fight for God's promises. And neither one in that moment seems to be believing God's promises as they seek through their own means to bring about their desired end. So in that same thought then, so in in talking about like God's plan always was that Jacob was going to get the blessing. Um, In chapter 23, or no, chapter 25, verse 23, when the babies are jostling in, in Rebecca's womb and she's like, you know, what's happening to me? And God tells her, hey, the um, older, one will be stronger than the other, the older will serve the younger. And then as they were born, Esau was the oldest, Jacob was the youngest, but so she had to remember this, but she still took matters into her own hands and was like in a panic, oh my goodness, Esau's gonna get the birthright, God needs help, his plan's gonna, you know, go kaput if I don't step in here. Um, And so, she steps in, and lo and behold, Jacob does get the birthright. But it was always God's, it's the same, it was the same end. How, and that's kind of, I guess, how God works, is like, this is his end. The means that gets there may look like it's all messed up or whatever, but it's still left up to us. Like she, even if she would have not stepped into it, he still would have had the same end. It's kind of like a math problem. I always joke, I'm terrible at math. Um, I mean, that's not a joke. I really am terrible about But I will get the correct answer eventually, but I will go all around the world to get there versus he's very good at math and he's, he's direct. In the end, we both got the same answer, but I did the most screwed up way to get to it, and he did it directly. And I think that's the, kind of the thing with this is you got the answer that God intended it was going to be, but whether she got into it or not, it was still going to be the same answer, the same ending. I think we can, we can overstate the case. Talking about how Isaac and Rebecca each seem to be taking matters into their own hands and not depending upon the Lord. Because one thing we've seen repeatedly in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, for instance, is that the people join prayer with action. 
We talked about that a couple Sundays ago. It'll, it'll come up in today's passage as well, right? That they pray and do this thing. They pray and do that thing. They pray and set a guard. But that's one thing that's striking, right? They don't pray and then sit. But that's something striking here. And at, at other points earlier in Genesis is people get up and do something, but don't. Right. And reference to the Lord at all, even being absent from the chapter. The Lord is at work. He's doing things. He's fulfilling his promises, even when he seems to be absent. Esther's a really, really interesting book that explores that because God's not even mentioned anywhere in the whole book of Esther. Yet we wouldn't have the book of Esther without the Lord. So. The interesting thing, uh, too, is power of words. And, you know, at the birth of these boys, and it's a reminder, you know, I, I'm sure that I did as a parent and others, we say this negative thing or that negative thing to this child or that child. Those have impacts. And so that strikes me that in a word report, because the world itself was created with a word. So, so that was said, poured into Esau and Jacob throughout their lives of what God's plan was. But the other thing that strikes me too is we, we hope that both Rebecca and uh, Jacob uh, are praying, but we pray, we make a decision, we sense right or wrong that this is what God has for me or directs me, but we may make mistakes. And, and ultimately for Rebecca, and it, it worked out. It was a horrible mistake. And lots of lessons were built and character qualities were established. But she, she took action. And I think, I think in the body of Christ, in my observation, you know, we pray, we pray, but we're so concerned about making a mistake, we do nothing. And that's, that's the, uh, a message for me, too. But the interesting thing, too, is... Um, Isaac ends up having a favorite child. How crazy is that? <laughs> he gets sent to the prison far, far away. You know? Jacob. Oh, uh, Jacob's son, Jacob. Benjamin. Yeah. Am I it's Joseph. Joseph. You're thinking of Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. But I mean, so this favoritism thing, you know? Anyway. Two. Yeah. Jacob learned a lot. Let's give him a coat that signifies that he's the favorite. It'll go brilliantly. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been neat, though, to see how God would have worked it out if she would have never yeah. stepped into it. Well, well, one thing I wonder is if you look back at what is pronounced when the children are wrestling in her womb, nothing in that requires enmity. There's clear position and authority and, right? Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That clearly falls out in terms of enmity between the brothers. But it's not a necessary corollary of what's described here. This doesn't require enmity between them. But perhaps that enmity develops, well, from the clear favoritism from one parent and the other, and certainly probably from the actions of chapter 27. So yeah, imagine what could have been. We have a tendency to hold, especially the families in Genesis at arm's length, right? We do this anytime we read the Bible. It's like we are, first we read it without paying attention. Like these are people just like us. And then we'll miss the differences. And so we'll apply things that don't, don't apply to us and it gets weird. And then we're like, oh, but actually they're different. And so then we'll hold them at arm's length. And we'll be like, oh, these people are so different from us that nothing that applies to them applies to us. We take a longer look, noting the differences, the differences in family structure and culture and all of that. They are more like us, or we are more like them, than sometimes we wish we were. And that can be discouraging on the one hand, but encouraging on the other. If we sit long with the text and think about the the struggles within these families across generations. Not many of us have households where we have rival wives, right? But we probably do have enmity between siblings and struggles and tensions between different branches of the family as God seems to be blessing my cousins over there and I'm not receiving any of it. And the the struggles of heart and mind and belief and doubt that flow out of that and the worries for our children and wondering where God is at work in the midst of that, we can read this and see that whatever mess is there, God is continuing to be at work in this family and across generations. That gives hope. It allows us, I think, to recognize the messiness of our families, which also allows us to see God's grace at work in the midst of that. When we keep it at arm's length, we miss that. I'm tired of living. That's just her trying to get Isaac to send Jacob away for his own safety. But on the other hand, for as I read it, it's just whatever the whatever may have been in that pronouncement in the last verse there, it just strikes me that life is hard, then it gets harder, you know. Can you imagine a situation like that? I mean, I don't know what we have where we could make an analogy, something like sending the younger brother off to join the army to get him away from his older sibling, the closest I can think of. Something that's going to take him far away for a long time. I know this isn't quite the, where we've gone with all this discussion, but um, what's always struck me when I've read this chapter is how 
Isaac tells Esau, go and hunt, go and prepare the food, bring it to me. And then when Rebecca gets involved, she has Jacob get, like, you know, from their own supply. And then she prepares it. Like, he doesn't even do the preparation like Esau had been instructed. And, like, that, I don't know, like, her mothering him to that extreme to get this to happen. Um, like, he's not, he does when he's with his father. He's lying of his own volition. But so much of this is, like, him, her, like, really taking control of the situation, him letting her. Well, and, the deceit, right? Right. and she puts him between a rock and a hard place, right? Are you going to deceive your father or are you going to dishonor your mother? And I think it shows the not just favoritism of mom and dad for their own kids, but favoritism of the kids for their parents. Because I kind of figured that meant like Esau has paid attention to his dad and learned what his dad likes and learned how to cook the stuff and whatever. Whereas Jacob was like, eh, I don't, I don't, I'm interested in my mama. I'm a mama's boy and I don't care what my dad's doing. And again, it's kind of parents' role to be, if one kid is like upset with a parent, to turn their thinking back to, you know, they're a good parent or what, you know, and not feed into that, that, oh yeah, and vice versa. And I think that they both, it was favoritism on both sides, which messed up their relationships all the way around. Wonder how many conversations Rebecca and Jacob had that started with, don't tell your dad, but. Yeah. Imagine a, a lot of us growing up probably had conversations like that with one parent or the other. I won't say whether I did or not. My parents might listen to this later. <laughs> All right. How's God going to fulfill the promises to Abraham with a cast of characters like this? And by grace, they totally deserve it, right? But that's what's kind of awesome about the whole thing is that even as a chosen, as all their faults, he still <coughs> blesses them and gives them what he's, you know, through them, his plan is fulfilled even through all of their sin. Yeah. So, this is one very helpful, although very hard thing that I think Genesis does for us. It takes us down a peg. Sometimes it's easy to start feeling like God owes me something. Of course, you got to be not paying very much attention to think something like that to yourself or to the Lord. But Genesis lays that bare in the lives of these people, right? God didn't know them anything except that he entered into a covenant and he determined to keep that covenant. As he made clear in Genesis 15, to his own hurt. Right, with a flaming torch and the smoking fire pot walking between the pieces of the broken animals. If the terms of this covenant are broken. Right, and Abraham knew what was up. He's ready to walk between those pieces. He's seen this before. He knows how this works. The Lord puts him to sleep. And the Lord walks between the pieces. Saying, if this covenant is broken, it will be my death that will be the outcome. That this covenant and its promises might be kept. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for reminders of the gospel on nearly every page. 
in the book of Genesis that reveal to us the depth of our need of your grace and the presence of your sustaining grace, even in seasons where your name doesn't cross our lips. Lord, would you call us to yourself? Would you confront us with persistent reminders of your love for us? That we might be assured of pardon, that you might be glorified and praised, and that sinners might be called to repentance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.